The Old Testament text is the 30, 139th Psalm. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Even your right hand shall, lay, uh, shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. The uh, theme of knowledge, the subject of knowledge, I should say, is a theme that runs through Scripture. And uh, to kind of help you follow what I'm about to say, I'm going to give you my points, my three points. You know, there are always three. First uh, is uh, uh, good to know, good to know. And then the next point is God only knows. And then the third point is what you need to know. So good to know, God only knows, and what you need to know. Good to know. You know, some things are not necessarily good to know. And some things are good to know. We saw that in the Garden of Eden. Recall that there was a tree. It was a tree of knowledge. Ah, knowledge related to good and evil, of course, but it's a tree about knowing. And there are certain things that we shouldn't uh, attempt to know. And one of those things, of course, is evil. 
You can have personal experience with evil and no evil in that way, and that's not a good thing. <clears throat> On the other hand, uh, what you have in that story is not merely uh, an experiment in evil. Uh, what you have in that story is taking up the subject of good and evil and uh, attempting to discern or determine for yourself, I should say determine as opposed to discern for yourself, uh, what is good and evil, taking matters into your own hands, being the author of good and evil in your own eyes. And we saw that in that story. Now, when we think about knowledge, traditionally in the Western world, it didn't all get classified as uh, the same sort of thing. There were different categories of knowledge and ways to know, and I'd like to reflect on that with you a little bit. One of the ways that our ancestors thought about knowledge and how it's acquired is really out of fashion today. We don't think about it or talk about it at all. And the other way that we think about it today is something that they knew about and thought about, but they didn't conceive, it, uh, conceive of it as the highest form of knowledge or of knowing. So let's go to the first of the two, the one that I alluded to that was once quite uh, well popular and people desired. Uh, to know in this way, and that is uh, contemplation. You can describe contemplation as uh, taking it all in, sort of uh, looking at the world and uh, appreciating it, admiring what you see, taking it all in. Sometimes people think about knowing in this sense when they are thinking about going out into the wilderness. Maybe they're heading out to, on a, you know, uh, a hunting trip or a camping trip, or maybe they just go uh, are going on a hike and they just just love what they see around them and they appreciate it. They, they apprehend its beauty and uh, they take it in, they take it all in. This is something that, by the way, uh, was believed to be uh, possible with all sorts of things, not just the natural world, uh, but just life in general. In fact, this is something that it was historically believed it was the correct way to read scripture. What you did is you came to Scripture and you just kind of took it all in. And when you take, take it in in this way, you, you appreciate what you, what you see, and in some real way, it has an effect on you. The task, in other words, is not to, to master what you've seen, but to allow what you've seen in some real way influence you and maybe even master you. And this uh, is something you see, uh, you know, in regard to reading scripture in the past in different places. And this particular approach to reading scripture, believe it or not, is not promoted in our seminaries or uh, in graduate education, generally speaking, when it comes to the study of the Bible. On the other hand, uh, there's another way to know, and that is something that uh, people uh, apply to, the, not, to, to learning and uh, the world in general today, and that's discursive reason. Discursive reason is reason that uh, seeks to sort of master a subject uh, and in the process um, acquire know-how. This is a perfectly fine thing to do. It's important. There are certain things that we need to master. And, uh, but as you can tell by the way I describe it, it's, a, it's more of a process of, of coming to a subject and taking control of it rather than letting it in some sense influence you and control you. And in this approach, you know, we have analysis and there's a kind of taking things apart and examining the parts and in order to understand how they all work together. And then hopefully there's reassembly, <laughs> but sometimes not. This is what 
Uh, Francis Bacon had in mind when he said, knowledge is power. Knowledge is power in the sense that when you acquire knowledge of this sort, you have mastery over the subject at hand. And this, by the way, is what we're told uh, basically to do, or to, this is the sort of knowledge that we're encouraged to acquire in seminary. A mastery of the subject matter in such a way that uh, it doesn't necessarily influence you. Have you ever noticed that there are some highly educated people out there who know biblical languages, know the history of the Western uh, world and Christian thought, and are about as reprobate as can possibly be? I encountered this when I lived in Cambridge. I never took it for granted that I knew the Bible better than the people that were uh, opposed to me, many of those atheists uh, that I would have interactions with and, and discuss matters with, were probably better, not, had, had more knowledge of the scriptures in this sense than 95 to 99 percent of the people in our churches. Now, these are highly educated people, PhDs, some of whom actually grew up in churches and lost their faith in places like Harvard Divinity School. That's where you go to lose your faith, Harvard Divinity School. By the way, I went to Harvard Divinity School, so I, I know what I'm talking about. But this kind of knowledge is worthwhile. I mean, this is the kind of knowledge that helps us to treat people with cancer. This is the kind of knowledge that helps us to make fabulous machinery to accomplish work. This is a good thing. But we can also apply this way of thinking to people in ways that are not so good, to manipulate them and to control them. There's a... Uh, moralist from the, I think, 17th century named Balthazar Gratian, and he uh, wrote a book entitled The Art of Worldly Wisdom. And when I'm feeling particularly cynical, you know, I'll take that out along with, say, you know, um, The Prince by Machia Machiavelli, <laughs> and I'll read it. But there's this uh, particular uh, entry in Gratian's The Art of Worldly Wisdom that helps you to see what I'm getting at. And I'm going to read it for you. Not because I actually want you to do it, but it's because I want you to see how people think about knowledge, particularly as it applies to people. He said this, Find each man's thumbscrew. Tis the art of setting their wills in action. It needs more skill than resolution. You must know where to get at everyone. Every volition has a special motive which varies according to taste. All men are idolaters, some of fame, others of self-interest, most of pleasure. Skill consists in knowing these idols in order to bring them into play. Knowing any man's main string, spring of motive, you have, as it were, the key to his will. That sounds diabolical. That's because it is. <laughs> And by the way, uh, the mastery of that art is something that, that we've become quite adept in. Um, totalitarians want to know all about you. Have you noticed this? They're particularly interested in understanding why you do what you do so that they can get you to do what they want you to do. That's what they're up to. There is a thinker, a father of, father of pragmatism, no, utilitarianism, father of utilitarianism, Jeremy Bentham, really creepy guy. Really creepy guy. Uh, when he died, he had his uh, corpse embalmed, uh, and it's actually on display in a, in a uh, conference room in London. And the society that he established, he said, from this point on, I'm at every meeting, even though I'm dead. <laughs> so there he is on display. Extremely creepy guy. But he came up with something called, known as the Panopticon. 
the panopticon, pan meaning all, opticon seeing, being able to see everything. It was his model for a prison. He said, this is the ideal prison. What you want to do is you want to establish within the prison a tower in the very center, and then you want to build the prison around the tower in such a way that every cell is under examination constantly. And in the tower, the panopticon just spins, and you've got one person in the panopticon just watching, never taking his eyes. Of course, when he's turned around, I guess maybe Bentham thought of that, and maybe there's another guy. <laughs> but you get the point. It's just you're always under examination. Why? Because knowledge is power. To be able to control people, you need to keep them under surveillance. You remember 1984, right? Those delightful television sets in 1984, remember? They were two-way. But uh, you only saw what they wanted you to see. You never saw them, but they saw you in an ongoing way. And by the way, we've, we've improved on 1984. We've got these little handheld devices that we take with us wherever we go. And they're constantly listening. They are. All you need to do is say, I need a new pair of tennis shoes, and watch. The advertisements just appear after that. But it's a whole lot worse than that. There actually is a listening station in Utah. And it's uh, run by the National Security Administration, of course, NSA. Uh, and uh, I learned about it a number of years ago. I was on the uh, board of the Academy of Philosophy and Letters. We have an annual meeting. We had some guys who were retired NSA guys. And these were guys who actually remembered listening in on phone conversations with Jane Fonda. These guys had tons of stories like this. I want you to know that our government's been spying on us for a long, long time. And at that listening station in Utah, every text, every phone call, every email in this country is recorded. It doesn't mean there's some guy sitting there with the earphones on listening to you, but your phone call is recorded. It never stops. And they've got the kind of computing power, if they want to learn about you, they can learn about you really fast with a few button pushes. That's the world we live in. And uh, they're always up to absolutely wonderful things, right? I mean, we can trust these people. I remember listening to Klaus Schwab. Remember Klaus Schwab, the head of the uh, World Economic Forum? Really creepy guy. Actually is descended from Nazis. And this guy uh, was being interviewed on television, and he said, you know, we just got to get used to transparency. We got to get used to transparency. I've got, the, I've got the video, so I'm not making this up. I can prove what I'm saying. Now, this is a paraphrase, but I've got, I've got I don't know, if, you, if you want the evidence, I can present it to you. He says, we have to get used to transparency because we're going to be watched all the time. And then he said this, this really creepy thing. Now, why should it bother you if you're watched all the time? If you're, if you're not up to something wrong, why would it bother you? And I'm thinking, man, you're begging the question. What are you up to is the question. <laughs> why are you listening in? You are assuming that your motives are pure and that your project is sound and that you really know what you're doing. I'm not so sure that you know what you're doing, but I know you know what I'm doing. And I'm not so crazy about that. By the way, this is not the kind of knowledge that God has of us. It's of a different character. And I want to discuss that now, what God only knows. We're told in this passage that the Lord, in verse 1, uh, well, let me read it for you. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. 
you have searched me and known me. This is a prayer. This is something that the psalmist is saying to the Lord. You have searched me and known me. And it's in the past tense. Did you notice that? By the way, for the Lord, everything's in the past tense. When you stand outside of time and transcend time and space, it's as good as done. Everything's in the past tense. You have searched me and known me. And then, you know, it says, you know, you know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. So the Lord knows uh, what we do, and he knows the intentions of our hearts. We see that in verses 2 and 4. And if we think we can get away, uh, it's hopeless. There's no escape. We see this. Uh, in verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascended to heaven, of course, you're there. But if I make my bed in Sheol, the, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and, and dwell uh, in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. Doesn't matter where we go, he's there. High or low, east or west, light or dark. And yet we run. Have you noticed this? And, and inwardly, we, we, I think, uh, can give uh, you know, the yes of the heart to this fact, and yet we run. We see evidence of that in Scripture. One of my favorite prophets in the Old Testament, Jonah. Jonah ran. Ran from the presence of the Lord. Ran down. Up. Now, I wasn't talking about you, Jonah, but you're named for that guy. <laughs> but anyway, he runs. And he thinks, I'm just going to get as far away as I can possibly get. I'm going to get on a boat to Tarshish. That's like at the other end of the world in the ancient way of thinking. That's out basically Portugal, Spain, there. And it's as far away as you can imagine getting. I'm getting away. Now, we know that in the story that the reason he's on the run uh, is because he doesn't want to be used to proclaim God's message to the Ninevites because he's afraid they're going to repent. And he knows that if they repent, the Lord being merciful is going to spare them, and he doesn't want that. So it's not that he was afraid of the Ninevites, although it would have been understandable to be afraid of the Ninevites. They were pretty nasty. But uh, he just wants God to get them, and that's why he runs. But God knows uh, what he's up to, and the Lord retrieves him in a very marvelous way. I'm sure it didn't feel very marvelous as he was being retrieved, but he eventually gets back on the job and does what he's told. And then, of course, there's the story of the prodigal son. Prodigal means wasteful, and that's what he does, you know. He goes to his father and says, hey, Dad, I can't wait for you to die. How about the money now? And then he takes his inheritance, and he goes and he squanders it way out there, you know, in, in some place uh, far away from his father. But eventually he comes to himself. That's a remarkable statement. He comes to himself after, of course, he's wasted everything. And when he comes to himself, he realizes that uh, his father will take him back, and he goes back and asks to be received. But when people do this sort of thing, and you've done it, I've done it. We all do it. It's not as though we just look at Adam and Eve and say, what ridiculous people. No, we say, I can identify with what's going on right there in that story. <laughs> I don't want to have to 
you know, present myself before the Lord knowing what I know about myself and, and I suspect he knows too. I, don't, I just want to hide. And so we retreat into sort of an inner darkness. And, and in a sense, we don't want to know ourselves at that moment. We just would like to cover everything up. We don't want to think about God. We don't want to think about ourselves. But it's all going to come out. It really will. Because when it, we're dealing with the one who already knows, uh, we know that he will judge us for those things that even we don't want to think about. And in the end, we're told in Luke's gospel, everything that's done in secret will be shouted from the housetops. Think about that. Now, we're told that also in the Gospels that we should cover up the good things, you know, hide those. So, in other words, someday the good things that we cover up can come out and will come out. The big question that we need to, you know, sort of address in our lives is what do we want to cover up? You know, whatever we want uh, to be proclaimed from the rooftops, that's the thing we should try to cover up. Do something good for a neighbor and not brag about it right? Fast and not look like you're fasting. <laughs> you know, pray and not let everyone know you're praying. That kind of stuff. Do it uh, Do those things, as the old preachers would say, un as unto the Lord. And then we should confess our sins. I don't mean we have to put all of our dirty laundry on display for each other, but we need to own up to the sins that we've committed and confess them to God, not try to fool ourselves and get, uh, you know, sort of the, the salute, this illusion so they're sort of uh, established in our lives that, that, that we're able to hide from the one before whom everything is, well, right there in front of them. Now, I'd like to get to that last point, what we need to know. Did you notice that the tone of this psalm is upbeat? That being known by God is a good thing. We see in verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. Now included in that sum is God's knowledge of the psalmist, right? And this is a good thing in his, uh, from his perspective. Because we're not talking about a, a malicious, selfish, power-crazed dictator. We're talking about the Creator the one who is our source and our destiny, the one who uh, skillfully knit us together and, and, and made us who we are uh, in the depths of the earth. Let me read that passage to you, by the way. That's a marvelous uh, presentation of the way in which God created each one of us. Verse 14, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. What's this a reference to? Obviously, it's uh, the womb. When we think about our bodies, our bodies are earthen vessels, recall. Uh, this allusion to the depths of the earth is an allusion to uh, the mother in whom our bodies came to take the shape and form that they, they do. And it's in that place that God knew us and made us. This is something, by the way, that is obviously a matter that people in our world don't want to think about. 
and particularly as, as it relates to the, the matter of abortion, um, it's not as though you can perform an abortion and it's somehow hidden from the, from the eyes of God. God is the very one who is forming the baby in the mother and not only the body, but the very life that will be led. You can see that alluded to as well. Uh, he says, your eyes saw my unformed substance, verse 16. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. It's not as though God makes us and then just says, well, there you go, kid, you're on your own. <laughs> Have a great life. God is still at work in our lives, still at work by his providential care and discipline, ordering our lives to their proper appointed ends. In other words, the work of creation continues. In this very moment, God is at work in you and on me, doing something, forming in us the image of his own son as Christians, right? So this is something that's an ongoing process. Now, we're told here that God's thoughts are great and certainly not uh, something that we can master in the sense that I described earlier when I made that contrast between contemplative knowledge and discursive knowledge. But we can contemplate God's thoughts. We can admire what we can discern, and we can see something of ourselves in those thoughts. Um, I remember Einstein, He's, he said a number of interesting things, but this is one of the more interesting. He said, when it came to the, you know, the purpose of his work, he said, I want to know God's thoughts. The rest are details. Now, of course, even the details are God's thoughts. But I think there's something that uh, is admirable in, in that statement. And we are to strive to know the one who knows us. Um, when the psalmist refers to God's thoughts, and he says in verse 18, if I would count them, there are more than the sand. Um, he's, he's not just simply throwing up his hands in despair, but he's admiring what he can know and what he does see. In verse 6, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. In other words, he can't, he can't apprehend God in the same way that uh, most modern people want to know things in that discursive, controlling sense. Lots of people would like to know God well enough to put him to work for them, but hardly anybody wants to know God in such a way that he puts them to work for him. See what I'm getting at? That's, you know, the appropriate approach to God and his word and to his law. By the way, uh, we're told in different places that uh, knowledge uh, can be good, bad, but never indifferent. When it comes to knowledge, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 8.1 that it can puff us up. Have you ever known somebody was just so into their own sort of intelligence that they were insufferable? I've known a few of those people. I've been that person myself. <laughs> but it's, it's the case that when you know stuff, you can kind of think more highly of yourself than you should. But in contrast, the Apostle Paul says in that same verse, but love builds up. 
Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. That's the kind of knowing that we should strive for, the kind of knowing that we see on display as God forms our substance, unformed substance and brings us into being. What we have is a loving and creative and benevolent God to whom we owe everything and before whom everything is as plain as day. Now, we do the best we can in this world. And the good news is that there's a world to come, and we're going to know more than we know now. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, of course, uh, the Apostle Paul says in verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That's a promise. We will know as we've been known. We will know God as we've been known by God. Now, we're told that we, we look in a, a, a darkened mirror, in other words, a mirror that uh, is not fully capable of reflecting the image that is found in it. Um, but this, this mirror is God's word. It's his law. Calvin, we like him. Uh, you know, he said, there are two things that we really need to know. We need to know God and we need to know ourselves. And the way we know God and the way we know ourselves is by God's law. When we look at God's law, we see the holiness of God and that the standard is, is so great that we can't possibly meet it. And in that moment of revelation, when we see that we can't meet the standard, we know ourselves. We know God and we know ourselves as we look at the law. And by the way, uh, Calvin got this uh, from James in James' epistle. Uh, in chapter 1, he says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word but not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. In other words, God's law, God's word reveals to us who we are and what we're like. Now, this can, you know, leave us feeling uh, depressed, despairing. Is this the end of the story? The, end of the, uh, the good news is it's not. Because in 1 John chapter 3, we're told that uh, when we, well, let me read it to you. Beloved, we are God's children now. Isn't that great? We're God's children now. We're God's children now because we believe in Christ. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. We want to know God. We want to know God. We want to have that encounter with him face to face someday because when we look at him, what will occur is that what we see in him will be reflected in us. We are, you could say, those darkened mirrors, but someday those mirrors will be clear and someday we will reflect the very God that created us. The image of God will be restored in us. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father, we'll be able to say that. Can you imagine being able to say that? 
and not feel like you're pretentious or putting anybody on, but it's just the way it is. That's what we're looking forward to. And we're told that if we have this hope, the mirror gets better, even today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, O Lord, for caring for us, for making us who we are. We know that your hand, handiwork uh, is on display in this room. We know that you have formed each one of us and brought us to the place we find ourselves today. And we take comfort in the fact that you're still at work, shaping and forming us and turning us uh, into people who can bear the image of, your, of, your, of, uh, of God in the face of your Son. Thank you for these things again. In Jesus' name, amen.